Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Amanda Phipps. She's an associate professor in epidemiology. She's also an associate chair of epidemiology at University of Washington. And we're going to talk about uh, cancer epidemiology and and, uh, related issues. So, Amanda, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Tell me, what's your work about? What is cancer epidemiology? Um, Well, that's a great question. So I think especially uh, in recent weeks and and months, epidemiology has become uh, more widely uh, recognized and acknowledged in the general public. Uh, But I think most people, when they think about epidemiology, tend to think about infectious diseases. Uh, Certainly, um, that is the more prevalent uh, sort of uh, association with epidemiology at this moment. But really, epidemiology is about the study of patterns of disease and trying to understand how certain diseases or health outcomes are distributed across the population. So with cancer epidemiology, we're really trying to identify what puts people at risk for cancer. Um, Why do some people develop certain kinds of cancer while others don't develop any cancer or develop different kinds of cancer? And among people who do develop cancer, what what predicts or, or what are the differences between people who have a good prognosis versus those who have a poor prognosis? So trying to identify the patterns that distinguish both risk of cancer and also cancer prognosis. Well, that's uh, could be a very long list. I mean, yes, it seems like the uh, you know the path of medicine is to be very reductionist. Like, what what are all the factors that could be considered, and then which ones are you focusing on? Because I'm sure you can't do everything. That's a great point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we think about cancer, I think most people recognize very clearly that we need to distinguish cancer into certain anatomic subsites. Uh, most of us would not expect that factors that put people at risk for prostate cancer would have to be the same as those that put people at risk for ovarian cancer. Right? So we certainly think about things like anatomic site, but even within a given anatomic site, not all cancers are created equal. There's a lot of heterogeneity or diversity in terms of cancer biology. So two people with the same, with colorectal cancer um, could have tumors that are biologically very different from each other. And those biological differences are important. Um, they tell us that those two tumors probably resulted from a different set of genetic changes, which means that different risk factors could have contributed to those colorectal tumors of those two people. And different courses of treatment might, might be necessary. So with my work um, and with the work of a lot of cancer epidemiologists, we, we gather all the biological information that we can um, to group cancers from a given anatomic site, like the colon or rectum, into more homogeneous subsets. So that includes um, information about the specific molecular or genetic changes of a tumor. Um, it also includes information like the stage at which a cancer was diagnosed, this anatomic site again, um, but also some characteristics of the of the person affected by cancer, their age at diagnosis, their genetic background, environmental factors to which they might have been exposed. All of those can help us, as you said, sort of be more reductionist and identify these more homogeneous subsets of cancer that are more likely to have 
a common origin or, or that maybe share similar responses to environmental factors and treatments? Well, I know there's some cancers that supposedly come because of viral infection, and there's others that we don't know the origin. Uh, again, you know, I guess here it has to be yet another focus. Is there a certain types of cancer that you're focused on understanding? Yeah, I'm, at the moment, I'm particularly focused on colorectal cancer. In the past, I have studied breast cancer, um, but a lot of the same principles that we study for any given anatomic site of cancer will apply across different cancer sites. As you said, there are some cancers that are most definitely um, very strongly related to some kind of viral pathogen, for example, HPV and cervical cancer. Uh, but for other cancer sites and other types of cancer, there may be some small viral component, but it's it's more likely that there are um, there's a combination of different factors that together contribute to the occurrence of a cancer. So, yeah, within colorectal cancer, I would think that uh, you know if it's overlooked, I, I can't imagine. But I mean, diet I would think would play a major role because right there is where a lot of the microbiome is housed and where diet would influence the microbiome and yeah. there's a lot of action of uh, you know, nutrient extraction and things going on. So I mean, what, what do you focus on in terms of colorectal to look for uh, you know, commonalities? Uh, well, that's a great point. I mean, certainly with respect to colorectal cancer, as you mentioned, dietary factors are really important. Everything that we eat in some way, shape or form makes it through our, our colon and rectum at some point in time. Um, so there's a huge influence of diet, but uh, it's really, really challenging to um, extract what particular aspects of diet are important. There definitely have been studies in the past of looking at red meat consumption and studies of uh, processed meat, and those certainly seem to be important. But uh, as you said, the microbiome is also critically important in our understanding of the role that the microbiome plays in colorectal cancer and also a variety of health outcomes is really still pretty new. Um, it is complicated because it's not just one exposure. The microbiome is a world unto itself. And it really um, depends on this intricate balance of different bacteria and microbes within the, within the gut. So in relation to my work, what we look at in particular is certain environmental or lifestyle factors, things like smoking, alcohol consumption, physical activity, which may all very plausibly be related to colorectal cancer risk and also colorectal cancer survival. Um, I also have some ongoing work right now where we are trying to look at the microbiome in relation to colorectal cancer, focusing in particular on those bacteria that actually infiltrate into the tissue of a tumor. So a lot of bacteria that we might find within a stool sample are really bacteria that are just kind of passing through the colon and the rectum, and they may not really infiltrate into the tissue. And what we think is that certain bacteria may have an impact, not just on the origin or etiology of colorectal cancers, but also on how those cancers progress and on their biology by infiltrating into um, the colorectal tissue and contributing to cancer in that regard. Well, have you looked at Yes, resected colons and you know, the tissue and, you know, characterize how it's changed when there's cancer or maybe you can learn things even from IBD or other, you know, things that affect the colon and compare. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So what we're doing right now is we're taking um, uh, existing biopsy samples from patients who've been diagnosed with colorectal cancer. And we look at the microbiome within those uh, biopsy samples, but then also paired samples from the same person from a, a normal subset or a normal section. I say normal, I mean non-cancerous um, section of the, of the colon or rectum to kind of compare what's happening 
in this person's colon or rectum inside a tumor versus what's happening right next to the tumor uh, to see if there are key differences in terms of what bacteria we find or in the balance of certain bacteria. Well, that's great. Yeah, there was just an article that came out, I don't know where it was, Science or somewhere that talked about uh, tumors having their own distinct microbiome. I remember I interviewed a lady, Florencia McAllister, that was looking at pancreatic tumors. But um, what, what do you see when you compare you know, normal colon, colon tissue to um, you know, a, a polyp or a, a cancerous polyp? What is it, what's different about the microbiomes? Well, certainly our science is still really in the early stages. So I can't speak too much to the specifics of our results just yet, but I will say that one bacteria that's really emerged from the literature uh, as a potential key player in colorectal cancer etiology is a bacteria called Fusobacterium nucleatum. Um, and this particular bacteria seems to be enriched, particularly in colorectal tumors as compared to normal colon tissue. And um, you also find, find it in the oral cavity as well. Um, it's not that we don't ever see it in normal colon tissue, non-cancerous colon tissue. We just tend to see it much more frequently in a subset of colorectal cancers. And uh, the thinking is that this particular, these bacteria, particular bacteria may also be involved in the immune response to a colorectal cancer, which in turn has implications for cancer survival. So they're important potentially not just for the etiology of a cancer, but also for how our bodies are able to respond to that cancer. So you see a uh, much more abundance of this particular bacteria, um, I guess, make it even more complicated. What about the phage activity associated with normal tissue versus uh, you know, cancerous tissues? Anyone looking at that or is that like another level of craziness that is too far too much? <laughs> well, no, I mean, it certainly is, is, where, is where we need to go. Um, you know, the, the study of, of the microbiome within colorectal tumor tissue is, is still pretty new. Uh, and the challenges that we encounter is that so many of our studies, including our study, we're really relying on biopsy samples that were collected a long time ago. Um, and for studies of the microbiome, what we really need are very large studies because there's so much variability across individuals uh, and there's so many bacteria to identify. So what we need are large studies and we need large studies that also have potentially matched normal non-cancerous tissue. And we need for those studies to also have good quality biospecimens. So you can see that there are a lot of asks there. There's a lot of need and it's not a simple undertaking, which is why there have not been a lot of large scale, really rigorous studies to date. And it's why I say there's so much left for us still to learn in terms of the microbiome. Um, the challenge that we face is that oftentimes the amount of rigor that we're able to put into a study is inversely proportional to the number of samples that we can collect or assay for a particular study. So you have to take this balance of quality versus quantity of data that you're collecting. And our goal, of course, is to collect the highest quality data for the largest number of samples possible. Um, but it is a challenge. So we're getting there. But, uh, but it's taking time. Why is it, um, oh, unfortunately, I don't know. I, I would guess colorectal cancer probably unfortunately is pretty common. What's difficult about getting samples if someone has, you know, a, well, a resection is pretty major, but I don't know, is it possible to get small biopsies of a colorectal tumor and then regular colon tissue from someone, or is that? Yeah, so, and, and, that's, and that's, what we, that's what we do. But for the most part, when you're dealing with hospitals, what they're going to do is they're going to fix 
their um, the biopsy samples. Um, they'll put them, they'll formal and fix them and put them in paraffin. And in that processing, um, there's a possibility or opportunity to in, introduce additional bacteria, right? So anytime you have different labs working with the same biopsy sample, every lab that a biopsy goes to, you have an opportunity for bacterial contamination. Um, so ideally what we would want to have is fresh frozen tissue, but that's not something that most hospitals are doing um, or that they have done traditionally. So it's more challenging to get those kinds of samples and also more expensive. I understand. So um, with samples, what kind of omics are you doing on them or what, what are you doing sequencing? Like what, what are you doing to figure out what's going on there? So with respect to our microbiome studies, we do a couple different assays. We're doing um, a DDPCR, digital droplet PCR, to identify the presence um, of the Fusobacterium nucleatum in particular, given that that was kind of one of our initial candidates that we were trying to identify in, in colorectal tissue. We're also doing a sequencing of uh, the 16S rRNA bacterial gene, and that will allow us to look at sort of a broader spectrum of bacteria from within the colorectal tissue. And that's just from this one particular study. And in other projects that we're doing, we collect a lot of different pieces of data and we're trying really to pull them all together so that we can get a more holistic view of colorectal cancer risk and, and prognosis. So in another study in which I work, we've, we've collected genome-wide association data um, so that's sort of germline genetic data very on a very detailed level from study participants, as well as epidemiologic risk factor data, things like um, what's your smoking history? How much alcohol do you consume? What's your consumption of red meat? How physically active were you around the time of diagnosis? And then also information on um, the tum tumor genome. So we're doing sequencing of tumor genomes as well and trying to piece together all that information. And now also for some studies, we're also trying to add information on the T cell response in colorectal cancers. So it's a lot of different layers of information that we're trying to piece together, but it requires a multidisciplinary team and lots of different um, moving parts at the same time to try to piece everything together. Yeah, that's really tough. And then colorectal cancer itself, like what age does this strike men, men or women, you know, what, what does your cohort look like to make sure it's statistically significant? Yes. So, um, you know, the, the projects that we're doing actually involve collaboration between a number of different ongoing cohorts, because, you know, the more information you add, the more granular you get with your data, the larger and larger numbers you, you need. So it's not enough for us to just take one single study and try to collect all this data. So we collaborate with folks from the Harvard cohorts. Um, so looking at the nurses health study, the health professionals follow-up study. We also include information from the women's health initiative um, and other uh, ongoing cohorts. We have a colon cancer family registry that participates as well. What we see for colorectal cancer is that as with most cancers, incidence increases quite dramatically with age um, such that you know, with individuals who have a strong family history of colorectal cancer, you might see some cases before aged, before age 40 or 45, but the vast majority of cases would be diagnosed uh, in their 50s to, to 70s, somewhere in there. So age is a really key determining factor. Um, incidence is, is high among men and women. It's a little bit higher in men than in women, but it's still the third most commonly diagnosed cancer, I'm sorry, second most commonly diagnosed cancer among men and also among women. And when, when someone has it, I mean, well, when does diagnosis typically come? Is it one of those cancers where 
it's rarely seen until it's pretty far advanced or can it be caught early? Well, fortunately for colorectal cancer, we do have screening tests available and they are relatively widely used, although certainly they could be more widely used. I will say one of the key advantages that we have with colorectal cancer screening is that you know, with a colonoscopy, unlike with many screening tests that we have available, a colonoscopy allows us not only to detect existing cancers early, but also to prevent cancer. Because if we do a colonoscopy and we identify that somebody has a precancerous polyp or lesion, that can be removed before it ever turns into cancer. So um, it's a really, really wonderful screening tool that we have available to us. In addition to other screening tools, um, like an endoscopy or like a, um, a fecal uh, occult blood test or FIT, which is a sort of immunochemical test that's being used now as well. Um, those tests, if positive, will prompt somebody to, to require a colonoscopy. So with colonoscopy, um, you know, we're able to detect cancers, like I said, even before they become cancer, while they're a precancerous lesion, um, but also at very early stages. I would say that it's one of those diseases where we do potentially see people being symptomatic before they are very far advanced, but certainly the younger you are, you know, the less likely people are to recognize their symptoms as being the result of colorectal cancer. And so individuals who are diagnosed early in life tend to be diagnosed at a later stage just because they, um, they may have more aggressive disease that didn't sort of register as colorectal cancer until it was identified through a test. And how long, when people have colorectal cancer, how long does it take to progress to the point where they're you know, having to have chemo, et cetera? Well, treatment is really dependent on the stage at which a person is diagnosed. Um, for individuals who are diagnosed with stage one or two tumors, so that's pretty early stage, hasn't spread beyond um, its original location. For those individuals, surgery is, is usually going to be sufficient. For people with stage three and some people with stage four disease, we would discuss, um, well, not me, I'm not an oncologist, but oncologists would discuss therapeutic options um, such as particular forms of chemotherapy. And then for stage four disease, uh, we would see additional treatment options there, different treatment strategies. For rectal cancer in particular, radiation is often um, used as a, as a form of treatment even prior to surgery. So it really, the treatment really depends on the stage at which a cancer is is diagnosed. Well, in your sampling, are you also looking at um, you know samples of tissue after someone's had chemotherapy, and then if they've had a partial resection um, and additional cancer develops, you know that would be another thing to look at too. Is another part of the colon if there's some left, unfortunately, you know that uh, what would that tissue look like? What would those you know that cancerous tissue look like? Um, even someone with metastatic versus non-metastatic disease, does that change the primary tumor or tumors and their microbiome and on and on and on? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I will say most of the biopsy samples that we get, almost all of them are samples that are collected from a resection. So those samples would generally be collected before a person has undergone chemotherapy, except if a person is maybe a, has stage four disease, really advanced stage disease, in which case they may treat the tumor first and then resect it. Um, and certainly chemotherapy would have a massive impact on the, um, on the microbiome of a tumor. It could also have a, a really marked impact on the biology of a tumor if certain chemotherapies are sort of um, disproportionately uh, killing or um, impairing certain cell types within a tumor, because even within a given cell, a given, sorry, a given tumor, 
Um, you may see heterogeneity in terms of the cell types, in terms of the specific mutations that you see in the tumor. And some chemotherapies might have a differential impact on, on different cells within a tumor. So absolutely, if you are able to get biopsy samples from before chemotherapy and from after chemotherapy, you would, you would see quite pronounced differences, but we rarely get those kinds of samples because we're just getting biopsies from resections. Yeah, the other issue too is um, the health of the person leading up to the resection. You know, what if they've had, I mean, I don't even know if it's part of the resection if they give them antibiotics. Yeah. That would totally blow up the microbiome. How do you even know what's what's what? And, uh, you know, what if they were sick a month before and they had antibiotics or they had a viral exactly. infection a month before? And, you know, like, it. I don't know. It's, well, I guess the more I think about it, the more I, I don't feel bad for you, but I'm like, <laughs> how do you, how do you, how do you account for all this complexity? It is fraught. That's the thing. Um, you know, that's also part of the reason why, because it's if it's off, often not possible for us to determine, you know, when we're dealing with these studies that were, con or where biopsy samples were collected quite some time ago, it's not possible for us to know who did or did not receive antibiotics and when. But you're absolutely right that a lot of people probably did receive antibiotics at some point in time, either immediately before biopsy or, or sometime in the not too distant past prior to biopsy. That's part of the reason why we collect these non-cancerous tissues that we match with the cancerous tissue, because our rationale is that if there is, um, if somebody has been on antibiotics such that we see a change in the microbiome and fewer bacteria, that change would be present in the non-cancerous tissue as well as in the cancerous tissue. Um, and uh, we can try to take that into account. The hope being that those bacteria that are really the, the bad actors might still be present um, in the tumor, or even if they were impacted by administration of antibiotics, that they might still be present just at lower concentration that they would have been otherwise. Hey. Hmm. So what, I don't know, what, what do you feel like you're on the path to figuring out in the somewhat near term in the next year or two? Um, well, you know, there are a few different things. Um, one, I, my hope is that we'll be able to identify some additional bacteria that are influential in, um, with respect to colorectal tumor biology and also with respect to prognosis. Uh, we also have ongoing work in other areas as well. In particular, I have a project now looking at um, patients who are receiving treatment with immunotherapy and trying to identify what factors are influential in immunotherapy response. Uh, I think that's another area where there's a lot of need, and I, I'm optimistic that we'll be able to, to find some preliminary answers. Um, so that's another area that I'm really excited about as well. Um, any particular big questions you're trying to answer that I haven't brought up? Well, um, I mean, there are a lot of questions, and, and my research, uh, I have a lot of different areas of research in, in which I'm interested. Um, the microbiome and colorectal cancer work is, is certainly central to what I'm doing. As I mentioned, this project in immunotherapy response is also one that I have an emerging interest in. And then I also have some research in the area of uh, looking at the relationship between obstructive sleep apnea and cancer that I think is, um, you know, to me, especially important given how common sleep apnea is in in the United States and how treatable it is potentially, um, but under-recognized. So that's another area in which I have a lot of interest. Yeah, that's a whole whole area in itself. Uh, yeah. Quick, maybe a quick few facts or interesting things about sleep apnea. 
what does it lead to particular types of cancers? So that's that's a, a an emerging question that we're still still trying to determine. Um, when we look at sleep apnea in relation to cancer overall, we do observe associations, but when we look at specific kinds of cancer, recognizing that um, certainly, again, not all cancers are created equal, we see a lot of heterogeneity. Uh, in particular, there seems to be some connection with melanoma and with kidney cancers, but the rationale or the basis for those specific associations is not something that's yet clear. Okay. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about the work that you're doing and, you know, to, uh, to get more deeply into it, check it out? Yeah. So um, uh, my work is is uh, all listed on my institutional website at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center and also the University of Washington. Um, and then uh, PubMed is always a good, a good resource as well. Okay. Very good. Well, Amanda, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. My pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.